All right. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 15 through 18 uh, today as we work our way through this chapter, this Advent. We're looking today at Jesus, our God. This is the third sermon in this Advent series. So Colossians 1, verses 15 through 18, as always, listen carefully as this is the Word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to Colossians 1 to learn more about Christ this Advent. Lord, we ask you this morning to give us the grace to understand your hard teaching here. It's hard because we want to listen to our own hearts instead of yours. Our hearts come to you this day in different conditions, some cold, some greedy, some wounded, some disinterested, some distracted, some apathetic, some empty, some under conviction. Some in need of comfort, some in need of encouragement, some in need of instruction. Lord, we could go on, but you know us better than we know ourselves. So this morning, give us these words of supremacy and sufficiency, images true and false, and most of all, words about Jesus. So open our ears to hear and our minds to know and our hearts to believe. And as always, give us the desire to learn from you and bow our hearts to your authority. And so we pray, speak through the words of the Apostle Paul this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus, our God. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, back in 2003, the International Dairy Foods Association celebrated its 10th anniversary of the Got Milk advertising campaign. How many remember that advertising campaign? Okay, most of you. During those 10 years, just about everyone from Michael Jordan to the Cookie Monster was featured wearing a milk mustache. Besides the fact that the construction of the marketing slogan is grammatically incorrect, got milk as opposed to do you have milk, I've never been particularly bothered by those ads, yet the cultural influence they've had bewilders me to this day. The Got Milk campaign spawned legions of copycats, including Got Termites, Got Hair, and Got Brains. And while those slogans are all probably harmless, there is one slogan that was used at that time as a bumper sticker for your car, and that slogan was Got Jesus. Now, the question, God, Jesus, presumes a number of things. Fundamentally, it presumes that one needs Jesus, with which we would all agree. Um, but my contention with it is that is with the question itself. 
Indeed, God Jesus begs the more appropriate question, does Jesus got you? Although it's not nearly as trendy and it never made it onto a bumper sticker, the truth of the matter is the former question, got Jesus, distorts the gospel. While the latter question, does Jesus got you, is at the very heart of the gospel. And what goes around comes around. So currently, there is a high-profile media campaign called He Gets Us. Some of you have probably seen that, ads on TV. It's funded by some wealthy members of a United Methodist Church in Oklahoma. And it has enlisted the help of several prominent evangelicals around the country. In fact, the PCA was invited to participate in this campaign. But since we've never met an issue we couldn't debate, uh, it has become quite the controversy in our denomination, including an online petition against participating signed by over 500 teaching elders. In the end, the PCA opted out as a denomination but left the option open for individual churches to participate if they wanted to. To the best of my knowledge, none have, but I expect a few will. The reason most, if not all, of the PCA opted out is because this campaign represents Jesus, well, as less than the Jesus of the Bible. According to their website, the goal of the campaign is inviting you to explore with us at He Gets Us how things might be different if more people followed his example. For some, it's a religious experience, but for others, it's simply a call to strive to love others better. Fundamentally, the campaign is missing the gospel. And some of the issues with it is, first, his humanity is elevated over his deity. Second, there's no mention in any of the campaign's posts that the reason we need Jesus is that we're sinners. In fact, the words sin or repent are never used. Third, Jesus is presented as all works and no grace. The campaign repeatedly presents Jesus as nothing more than a moral example to be followed. Its message is to be like Jesus because if he could be a good example, so can you. It fails to mention his sinless life and his atoning work on the cross as the indispensable heart of the gospel message. They want you to think they're good Christians following the, quote, authentic Jesus a phrase they use to describe a Jesus that they have created in their own image, based on a very loose interpretation of the scriptures, a Jesus they think the secular world will find attractive. The rest of us are apparently Pharisees for asking people to repent, stressing Jesus' death on the cross, and proclaiming his resurrection from the dead. Let me be clear. Jesus was not primarily concerned about being a good example. He was primarily concerned with being a ransom for many, Matthew 20, 28. The bread of life, John 6, 35. The light of the world, John 8, 12. The good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep, John 10, 11. And the savior of the world, 1 John 4, 14. So who do you think Christ is? Now, Jesus himself asked that very question of his disciples one day. He wanted to find out what they were hearing from the crowds. So he asked them uh, this question, and we find it in Mark chapter 8. 
Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others say, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. The question is, but who do you say that I am? And that's the question we all have to face. Who do you think he is? Do you think he's a great moral example? Do you think he's a great teacher, a great prophet? Paul says he's more than that, much more than that. And Paul says the answer to the question, who do you say that I am, will have a profound impact on your Christian life. Perhaps we spend too little time thinking about that question. So here in Colossians 1, Paul answers that question. And he does so by relating Christ to the world in three different ways. The first thing we see is how Christ relates to God. How Christ relates to God, verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, we're told no one's ever seen the invisible God. To do so would mean instant death due to our inherent sinfulness. God said so in Exodus 33. You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. But the good news is that God chose to reveal himself in a way that we can handle by becoming flesh and taking on human form. And that was part of our response of reading this morning, John 1:14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And his name is Jesus. And the consistent testimony of the New Testament is that he's fully God made known to us. You can see that in Philippians 2 or Hebrews 1, a number of places uh, throughout the scriptures. And the New Testament gives us little physical description of what Jesus looked like. And to be honest, it wasn't really necessary for the apostles to tell us that. But it was necessary to verify that Jesus was God who came to earth as a man. And his role in being our substitutionary sacrifice, taking our place on the cross, depends on that fact. So the first thing we learn here is that Jesus is the image of God. Why is that important? Because one of the great sins of mankind of all times and ages has been wanting to make God in our own image. We want to imagine God to be what we imagine him to be. And as a result, one of the Ten Commandments is devoted to this particular sin because it is so serious. We see that in Exodus chapter 20, <clears throat> starting at verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the first commandment, 
Exodus 20, verse 3, says, You shall have no other gods before me. But the second commandment, which I just read, is saying you mustn't worship the true God and imagine him to be what you want him to be. You must worship him as he reveals himself to be. So in a sense, the first one is against idolatry. The second one is against heresy. Trying to make God into what we want him to be. Now, the whole thing is summed up here in verse 15. Because there's two aspects to what the Bible teaches about imagining God or making an image. A carved image, or to use older language, a graven image, means a man-made image of God, whether physical or mental. And when the Bible talks about this, it says God is invisible, but he has made himself visible in Jesus Christ. So first, it is absolutely forbidden for you or me to make the invisible God visible. It's absolutely forbidden for us to create images on our own of what we want him to be. And second, God has made himself visible. (coughs) Knowing that we need an image, he has given us an image in Christ. The reason we can't make our own images is because God will provide the right image that will not distort our lives. So those are the two points. It's forbidden to make the invisible God visible because God has made himself visible in Jesus. Now, the word imagination and the word image both come from the same root word. And when we think of an image, we think of a physical image usually, but physical images are based on mental images. And God says, you must not imagine me to be whatever you want me to be, but you must let your imagination be regulated By the truth. You must not say, I like to think of God as the late Dr. J.I. Packer, a great theologian, said the second commandment means that any statement that begins, I like to think of God as, should never be trusted. That's what the second commandment is all about. But we live in a time in which the idea of objective spiritual truth, objective moral truth, what you might call hard copy truth, truth that can't be manipulated, what Francis Schaeffer called true truth, meaning truth that's there whether you believe it or not, that concept isn't even understood anymore. It's not a concept that most people even have anymore. And yet that's what the second commandment is all about. The objectivity of truth. And God is saying, do not worship me as you want me to be. Do not think of me as you want me to be. Worship me and think of me as I reveal myself to be. As I really am. And the Apostle Paul says here, the beginning of verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That means, therefore, that he is not made in the image of God, but rather he is the image of God. In other words, he is the likeness of God. We read that in Hebrews 1. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, he is none other than God himself. 
So that's the first part on image. Second part of that verse talks about being the firstborn of all creation. And we know the Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians to battle a heresy that was creeping into the church called Gnosticism. And the Gnostics taught that all physical matter was evil and only the spirit or non-material things were good. And they claimed Jesus only appeared to be human but was actually a spirit. Some even suggested he was perhaps some kind of celestial angel created by God. And that latter idea that Jesus was some kind of created angel is a heresy that's been circulating all the way since the early church, but most recently by the Jehovah's Witnesses. And I'm not going to go into that in great detail because I preached a whole sermon about that five years ago, and you can look that up on our website. But why does Paul use firstborn language? Generally, in the Old Testament, firstborn means the son who is born first. Daughters weren't counted if a son was born after them. Sorry, ladies. That child had a leading place in the family and normally took over as the head of the family upon his father's death. However, often in the Old Testament, this is a right conferred by the father rather than a place in the birth order. If you think about Jacob getting chosen over Esau, and there's probably a dozen of those examples, how David was chosen over his six brothers. Um, so it's not always just first in line in order of birth. Now, outside of his birth in Luke chapter 2, there are five verses in the New Testament that give this remarkable title of firstborn to Jesus. We have two of them here in Colossians 1. Verse 15 telling us that he is the firstborn over all creation. And Christmas reminds us that Jesus is the Lord of creation and we need to obey him if we intend to use and enjoy his creation for uh, our good and for his glory. He is supreme over all creation. And then we have verse 18 that he is firstborn from the dead. He is the highest and greatest of all who have been or will be raised from the dead and one day all believers will be like him. We see that in Philippians 3 and 1 John 3. He is the firstborn among many brothers, Romans 8, 29, which makes us the assembly of the firstborn, Hebrews 12, 23. And Hebrews 1, 6 tells us that when God the Father brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So firstborn implies supremacy, the highest of the high, and that's why it's applied to Jesus. In every way, he is first. Yet he is not part of the creation, not even one of the redeemed, for he is the image of God and the firstborn of all creation. So that's the first thing. Next we see how Christ relates to creation. Verses 16 and 17. We're going to start there, verse 16, how Christ relates to creation. And I want you to notice the three prepositions in this verse. And you're racking your mind, what's a preposition? It'll come clear. And uh, if you have a sermon outline uh, with you, I, I've put them in large print and bold and uh, capital letters and everything else. So it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So here Paul ascribes to Jesus the role of creator. If all things in heaven and on earth were created by Jesus, then it makes no sense to say that Jesus himself was created. Furthermore, the fact that Paul says Jesus was before all things means that Jesus existed before creation. So he's existed for all eternity. And Paul is arguing that Jesus is the God who created all things and that all creation was created through him and for him and is sustained by him. Paul is teaching us that Christ created all that there is. Going back to John chapter 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He was with and in God and was God, and God created all things through him. Therefore, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, could not be regarded as something that was made, but instead is the maker himself. Before we move on to the next section, I want to point out another thing. One of the keys to learning the Bible is seeing the repetitions. And here we see Paul repeats the phrase, all things. Briefly, verse 16, for by him all things were created. Further down in that verse, all things have been created by him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, the Apostle Paul, as we saw last week, has already prayed that the Lord would give the Colossians all wisdom and knowledge of the Lord. They would experience his divine power. Over and over again, he repeats this phrase, all things. Why? In order to stress that all things have been included under the rule, under the dominion of Christ. So that if the Colossians need to pray for something, they don't need to look anywhere else but to Christ. Because all things are his. He made it. He rules over all things. All things were created for him. All that came into being exists for Christ. That is, it exists to display the greatness of Christ. Nothing exists for its own sake. Everything from the bottom of the, of the ocean to the top of the mountains, from the smallest particle to the biggest star, from the most boring subject in school to the most fascinating science and most beautiful art, from the ugliest insect to the most attractive human, from the greatest saint to the most wicked dictator, everything that exists exists to make the greatness of Christ more fully known, including you and including the person that you have a hard time liking. That's why things exist, to make Jesus' greatness known. Finally, we see how Christ relates to the church. Verse 18, we have this phrase, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He's not only first over creation, 
But Paul says he's first over the church. He's the head of the body, which is the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he will have first place in everything. That's what it means to be preeminent, to have first place in everything. Notice what Paul stresses here. Christ is the head of the church. He's the authority. He's the only head. He's the only Lord of the church. And that's actually good news. For believers, that's our charter of freedom as a Christian. You know that no other person can make up rules for your Christian faith which have not been ordained by the Lord. You are free to be who God intends you to be, and no one, however spiritual they are, can add to the commands of the Lord for what you are to be. It's your charter of freedom. That's why I can't tell you to do stuff. I can't command you or make you to do anything unless I can open the book and point to a verse. Because God can tell you to do it. But if I can't open the book and point to a verse, I can suggest, I can persuade, I can tell you I think this is a good idea. But I can't command you to do it. Only God can do that. And you think about it, I mean, we live in a day and age where even among believers, people feel they're burdened by having to obey the Bible. And that's simply not true. The Bible frees us from the foolish commands of other people. I mean, who has the authority to tell Christ's servants, even as brothers and sisters, how they are to live and serve if it's not Christ? The answer is no one. It's only the Lord. He's the Lord over the church. If anyone else claims to be the head of the church other than Christ, it's actually a blasphemy against Christ. It doesn't matter if the person's a great person, a great leader, because Christ is the only Lord in his church. He's also, by saying that he's the head of the church, in a sense, he's the source of all spiritual life. Paul says he's the source, he's the head, he's the fountainhead of all spiritual life. If you have life as a believer, it's because you're united to Christ by faith. If you have life, it's evidence that Christ, as the head of the body, which is the church, that he is at work within you. Now, as I kind of look out, having gotten through all this sort of doctrinal stuff that Paul's taught us, I think people have one or the other problem with what he said, and specifically with what, uh, with Jesus himself, with what Paul's taught about Jesus. Some people doubt his supremacy. Others doubt his sufficiency. Those who doubt the supremacy of Christ are normally not Christians. They may be atheists, they may be religious, they could be members of another religion or some form of liberal Christianity, but they doubt what Paul claims here about the supremacy of Christ. They may honor Christ as a great moral teacher or as a prophet, but they don't believe he's Lord over all things. They don't believe that in everything he might be preeminent. Others, perhaps within the church, within the Christian community, may acknowledge Christ's supremacy uh, with their words. They may give assent to the idea that he's supreme. But they have serious questions as to whether or not he is sufficient. They continue and try to uh, supplement Christ in their Christian life. 
they start with Christ, but then they move on and try to add other things. Sometimes they move on to their own works, think that uh, they can uh, begin with Christ, but if they're going to stay in fellowship with Christ, they have to supplement it by earning God's favor with their obedience. We obey because we already have God's favor. We don't earn God's favor with our obedience. But in both cases, those who doubt Christ's supremacy and those who doubt Christ's sufficiency both lack Christian maturity because in the end, they refuse to believe that in everything he might be preeminent. So if we want to develop true Christian maturity, we need a true picture of Jesus not least in his absolute supremacy, which Paul sets out in these verses. I think this is one of the most beautiful Christological, which means study of Christ, passages in the whole New Testament. This is how Paul proclaimed Christ as Lord, as Lord of creation, the one whom all, through whom all things were made, as Lord of the church, the one through whom all of his people have been redeemed, because of who he is, the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation, and because of what he has done, the one who brought about both creation and redemption, Christ has a double supremacy. He's head of the universe, and he's head of the church. He's the Lord over both creations. This is Paul's masterful portrait of Christ. And when you look at it, where else should we be but coming before him in worship. So where then do we find the authentic Jesus? The answer is he's found in the Bible. The book which could be described as the Father's portrait of the Son as painted by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is full of Christ. He himself said, the scriptures bear witness about me, John 5, 39. Dr. Packer said the knowledge of Scripture is knowledge of Christ. Nothing is more important for our spiritual growth, for Christian maturity, than having a true picture of the authentic Jesus. And so in verse 15, Paul begins this litany of amazing truths about Jesus. It's probably the most concentrated description of the glories of Christ that we can find in the New Testament. I count 15 in the chapter 11 just in these verses. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation, the specially honored first and only son over all creation. Verse 16, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So all things were created through him. All things were created for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18, he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he is preeminent. If your heart ever wavers and grows cold, go here. Go to these verses. Memorize this recital of the glories of Christ and ask God to give you the affection for him that corresponds to the measure of his greatness. He is the creator. He is the redeemer. He is the image. He is the firstborn. It's all here. 
if any person or power or any wisdom or any love awakens any admiration or any amazement or any joy in your life, let it be the greatest person and the greatest power and the greatest wisdom and the greatest love that has ever lived, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So think about that. And this Advent, thank him for it. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we acknowledge and confess to you that saying the words is easier than living the life. That professing you as Lord and submitting to your Lordship are not the same things. And we have become practiced at the words while using them as a cover for a life that does not acknowledge that in everything you might be preeminent. So before you now, we repent and we ask you to have mercy. Enable us to topple the idol of making you in our own image and instead look to Christ as the true image of the invisible God. Help us to set apart Christ as Lord, preeminent in creation, preeminent in redemption, preeminent in all things. Lord Jesus, you are all our hearts need. Forgive us for going to the empty promises of the world, looking in broken cisterns where there is no water, instead of coming to you, the fountain of living water. So grant that we would make less of ourselves and more of you. Enough for the world to see your grace and your glory and work in each of our hearts as we learn from the Apostle Paul this Advent to know without a doubt that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so by the power of your Holy Spirit, draw us ever closer to the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, your Son, Jesus, our God, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen.